Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The ocean breeze pushed the California palm leaves to dance. Just under the treetops, a young artist stood on a ladder in the bed of his truck, perfecting the billboard he was hired to paint. A free spirit, 31-year-old Alan Noonan was fully immersed in the act of creation. He blended the greens and blues of a cartoonish rainbow as he listened to the Cincinnati Reds pummel the Brooklyn Dodgers on the radio. While he wasn't a regular baseball fan, 1947 was a big year. Allen was concerned for the Dodgers' first black player, Jackie Robinson. He hoped the athletes and fans would be kind. Without warning, the radio froze. The skies darkened and Allen's body went numb. He dropped his brush. Then a warm shaft of ultraviolet light colored his world. Golden vines of energy enveloped him and pulled his body up into a great, stark place miles above the earth. Feeling an unearthly peace, Alan realized he was in a spaceship orbiting the rim of the solar system. Suddenly, a bright light blinded him and goose pimples spread over his skin. A low voice spoke from the light, informing Alan he had been chosen to fulfill a new destiny. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just stream Cults for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. This week, in a one-part episode, we're taking a deep dive into the New Age sect, the Universal Industrial Church of the New World Comforter. The group was led by hippie, artist, vegetarian, and extraterrestrial contactee, Alan Michael Noonan. Noonan blended pseudo-Marxist philosophy with psychedelic hippie subculture of 1960s flower power. Supremely God-conscious, he dedicated his life to serving humanity in his own way. We'll put Alan Michael Noonan under a microscope right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Boo berries. 
That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Bernard and Bessie Noonan owned a family-run coffee shop and electronics store in the tiny town of Britt, Iowa. The Noonan's home and businesses were located on Main Street in the small downtown. From the window of their store, they could see the billboard on which Britt's town slogan was painted. It read, Britt, Iowa, a place to call home. The Noonans loved their hometown and felt blessed when, in 1916, they finally introduced their beautiful newborn son, Alan, to their closest friends and family. As a boy, Alan enjoyed time with his parents and four siblings, Eveline, William, Marcine, and Pauline. After school, each of the children arrived at the shops to help with daily operations. They were supposed to split their time between both businesses, but Alan always ended up at his father's electronics store. It was there he discovered a deep passion for invention. Though tasked with working the register, Alan scuttled to the back to deconstruct and rebuild electronics. In time, he learned to mix and match parts, crafting entirely new gizmos for the shop. A gifted boy, he even fashioned a huge kite with a camera, which could capture aerial photos of Main Street and beyond. His father's workshop was Alan's personal slice of heaven. In fact, he later claimed to have often been visited by angels there while tinkering alone. The angels shared secret truths with him and showed him many miracles. For instance, young Alan witnessed the merging of his existence with all things, and he also saw himself living on other planets. But at the time, the angels also asked him to keep their visits secret. They said others wouldn't believe him and that he'd be shunned and ridiculed. Alan felt he could handle any humiliation, but he stayed quiet out of respect for his special friends. He trusted what the angels said and also that they would guide him to carry out an extraordinary purpose. If he played by their rules, he thought they'd reveal the details of his destiny. During the Great Depression, Alan started high school. Though his parents' businesses likely suffered, Bernie and Bessie were intent on supporting their son's education. They encouraged him to follow his bliss by running track and creating art. By 1934, 18-year-old Alan had earned several notable honors as an artist and athlete at Brit High School. He even made local headlines as the winner of the auxiliary poppy poster contest. In his senior year, the paper covered him again as he set Iowa's record for the mile run. His brothers and sister likely believed that God gave Alan his talents. But even during his youth, Alan shunned the idea of an anthropomorphic Christian God above the clouds. Alan thought God was more like a cosmic feeling than a powerful human being. A man like God had nothing to do with him winning at sports. In any event, the race earned him a full scholarship to college. However, university life wasn't for Alan. He'd been a big fish in Brit's small pond, but he felt different here. After just one year on the track team, he quit school. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Education expert Dan Reisman wrote about this issue in a Psychology Today article called The Silent Epidemic, Young Men Dropping Out of College. 
In it, he said boys don't socially mature as quickly as girls and are therefore less adaptable to new circumstances. As college freshmen, boys are also less likely to seek help for depression or other mental illness. Reisman concludes, the disjunction between grand expectation and humbling reality can result in extreme frustration and minimal career mobility. We don't know exactly why Alan Noonan dropped out of college, but perhaps it was on the instinct that he was destined for an extraordinary mission and wondered when it would start. He certainly wasn't finding his calling at school. Determined to educate himself in his own way, he embarked on an artistic career as a sign painter. He took odd jobs here and there and built a roster of clients, but in 1942, 26-year-old Allen put his professional goals on hold. Despite his pacifist nature, he was drafted to the military and forced to register as a conscientious objector. He likely told the recruiters that he had no enemies and refused to shoot at any living being. Luckily, the officers came up with just the right job for him. They sent Allen to Africa, where he worked with a non-combatant battalion to paint the Allied tanks with camouflage. Though he was never forced into battle, the extreme loneliness and isolation of his station deeply affected Allen's mood. He told himself that when he made it home again, no matter when that day came, he'd put aside all other endeavors to search for a suitable companion. World War II came and went, and Allen returned home to America. Soon after, when he was 29 or 30 years old, he finally met the woman who would become his wife. Her name was Marion. Not much is known about Marion, but she and Allen had a son together. The family lived in Long Beach, just outside Los Angeles in sunny Southern California. It was there in 1947 that 31-year-old Allen secured work painting signs for the West Coast's leading billboard company, Foster Kleiser Advertising. One morning on the job, Allen experienced a supernatural event that knocked him sideways into a brand new life. Atop his ladder in the bed of his truck, Allen perfected the edges of a rainbow for his sign. He was impressed with his work that day. Even the sunset backdrop looked real. He joked with himself that some commuters might be tempted to drive right into it. Suddenly, Allen's radio went out. Before he could think about the oddness of it, the sky turned black. He dropped his jaw and his paintbrush. An orb of purple light surrounded the artist, and gold ropes lassoed his body. It felt so good to be taken, he failed to notice he left his body and the earth below. Though he seemed to be slowly floating beyond the atmosphere, he couldn't believe how quickly he'd reached his destination. His soul landed in a stark yet grand pillared room in what looked like a spaceship. Outside the windows, the stars mimicked one another with their twinkle and fade. Alan was awestruck. His astonishment was interrupted by an impossibly low, all-powerful voice, like being addressed by thunder and lightning. It emerged from a steady source of brilliant silver light. It called itself Galactic Logos, the great galactic being manifested as the whole galaxy. In other words, it was God, who was an alien. Through ESP, Alan realized he was aboard the Galactic Command Space Complex. Every wall within the spacecraft was illuminated with scenes from Alan's life. He saw his past and then watched as the panels showed images that transcended space and time, 
until he witnessed eternity. Galactic Logos informed Alan that he'd been chosen to execute an extraordinary mission for the people of Earth, to show them the utopian paradise to come, one in which money was obsolete. In this new Jerusalem, everyone would have unlimited freedom, security, and abundance. Souls would rely on autonomous self-government, and there would be no ruling hierarchy. Finally, Galactic Logos asked Alan, My son, will you be the savior of the world? Alan said yes. Up next, Alan Noonan's friends and family start to think he's lost his mind. Listeners, this month marks 60 years since John F. Kennedy became the 35th President of the United States, ushering his already prominent family into the highest enclaves of political power. But behind their storied successes lie secrets and scandals so severe, if it were any other lineage, they would have been left in ruin. This January, to commemorate this iconic milestone, dig into the dramas of a real-life American dynasty in the Spotify original from ParCast, The Kennedys. Crime, history, mystery. This exclusive series from Spotify features your favorite ParCast hosts, examining one of the world's most formidable families from all angles. Whether it's assassinations and conspiracies, corruption and cover-ups, international affairs, and extramarital ones too, Discover all of the Kennedy family's most controversial moments, all in one place. You can binge all 12 episodes of this limited series starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Follow The Kennedys, free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1947, a 31-year-old painter named Alan Noonan claimed he was summoned to outer space to meet Galactic Logos, the great galactic being manifested as the galaxy. Logos asked the painter to serve as the savior of the world, known as the spiritual comforter. According to Logos, Alan would present those back on Earth with the supernatural truth of the everlasting gospel, beginning with the new covenant of rites. The gospel would be a compilation of messages from Logos, informing Earth's inhabitants of the transformation of the planet into a space-age utopia. Because Alan had grown up believing he was destined for some phenomenal mission, he was eager to receive this special duty. On accepting his role, Galactic Logos renamed the painter Alan Michael to reflect his promise to watch over the world's holy people, just like the Bible's Archangel Michael. Once he agreed to take on the spiritual responsibility, Alan Michael's soul was thrust back into his earthly body. He woke up bleeding on the asphalt under the rainbow sign. As he came to, he heard his boss cursing at him to finish his work. Alan Michael rose from the ground and leaned against his truck. As he caught his breath, he felt different, stellar. He had changed. He could feel it. He was the new world comforter. He was so excited he couldn't finish the day's work. 
He ran back to the workshop and asked his co-workers if they'd seen the mothership or felt the light. His peers simply stared at him, troubled and confused. But Alan didn't care. He hopped in his truck and rushed home to tell his wife what had happened. Alan knew people might think he was crazy, but it just didn't matter. In his article, Alien Abduction, Yale Clinical Professor of Psychiatry John Klein, Ph.D., discusses the experience of those who claim to have been abducted by aliens. He argues people who report these experiences are not psychotic and most are not simply advancing a hoax. There is risk in sharing one's abduction story. However, Klein says that despite the often negative aftereffects, most abductees report they would still choose to have been abducted. This is because many abductees come to see these events as having added meaning and purpose to their lives. Unfortunately, some of his closest friends and family members did think Alan Michael was going crazy. His young wife, Marion, seems to have found no comfort in his spiritual transformation. After a few months, Marion reached a breaking point. While we don't know the details of their relationship, by the end of 1947, she fled the marriage. The couple divorced, and once again, Alan Michael was alone. With no distractions at home, Alan Michael obsessed over his experience. He dubbed Logos the universal mind of extraterrestrial intelligence. Day in and day out, he practiced channeling messages from the universal mind. He kept the King James Bible with him at all times, reading and rereading the verses about the Comforter and the Holy Ghost with his own extraterrestrial interpretations. To Alan Michael, John chapter 14 verses 16 and 26 said it all. And I will pray to the Father, and he shall give you another Comforter, that he may abide with you forever. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. He committed Bible verses to memory, and vowed to practice cosmic consciousness. He wrote down every message from Galactic Logos to compile the everlasting gospel. He was determined to preach the space message to the entire world. Alan Michael thought if he could convince others to believe in this new gospel, the corrupt world he knew would finally die and morph into something beautiful, evolved, and divine. He needed an army of followers to help rid the planet of selfishness, disease, inequality, and capitalism. Alan felt that once the forces he saw as Earth's evils were gone, a new world could exist. Alan Michael knew that this utopia could only be created by the peaceful and nonviolent actions of a society that saw all creatures as equal. If enough people converted to build a generous and fair society, the universe would transform itself into a utopia. But the New World Comforter wasn't sure where to find such devotees. Then, in July of 1954, Logos instructed 38-year-old Alan Michael to direct his eyes to the sky. There, he'd find a lone, towering cumulonimbus thunderhead. As sure as he heard the voice, he saw the massive cloud. He fired up his station wagon and drove under its shadow until it moved southeast. Eventually, the cloud dissolved over the giant rock in the Mojave Desert, a large boulder that was well known to UFO enthusiasts. 
The air felt thin over the arid, rain-shadow land. The place was eerily quiet, but Alan Michael knew that he would meet otherworldly beings if he waited long enough. Patiently, he bided his time and set up camp. Darkness crept over the desert, and finally, a spaceship appeared through the clouds. In the blackness, there were quick bursts of friendly light that lured Alan Michael to sleep. He dreamt he was a flying saucer with Galactic Logos and the members of the Space Tribunal. When he woke in the morning, the spacecraft materialized again, this time about 75 feet from his location. It floated mid-air, six feet above the ground. According to Alan Michael, a plank shot out from the ship. On it, three extraterrestrial energies hovered. Somehow, he recognized the beings. They were known as Favelron, Celeste, and Jameston. But before he could join them, they blew him farewell kisses and sped off. Though no words were spoken, Alan Michael knew through ESP how to proceed with his mission. The New World Spiritual Comforter raced home to Long Beach, California. He couldn't wait to establish the next phase of his plan. Within a few weeks, he opened what he dubbed a New Age business and communal experiment. Michael Allen called his new venture the House of Meditation. Essentially, the house was a coffee shop, performance space, and art studio. The artistic community in Long Beach made the shop home. Even the folk pop musician Jackson Brown was known to perform there. The House of Meditation succeeded for close to a decade. The communal aspect did attract a few subscribers to Alan Michael's theories. However, Alan's vision didn't fully materialize. While the business did well and Alan Michael had a few followers, the art space didn't quite live up to the grand expectations set by Logos. In 1967, the 51-year-old artist received another telepathic directive from his galactic guides. They instructed him to move north to San Francisco and open a natural food grocery store and restaurant. He called the restaurant the Here and Now. Slowly but surely, a handful of loyal and hardworking hippies gave Alan Michael and the restaurant their time, energy, and hearts. To Alan Michael and his commune members, the restaurant acted as a model for living in a new world of communal consciousness. The initial setup was pretty basic. Commune members shared everything, on every level. Socially, they had the same friends. Economically, they pooled the restaurant's profits. Mystically, they agreed Alan Michael was the spiritual comforter. As far as work and love went, they physically approached every task and every moment of intimacy together. Monogamy was not allowed. By the mid-1970s, the group began hosting a series of Tantra yoga classes that taught sexual energy yoga in a group. And though the group promoted free love, they were biased towards heterosexuals. They excluded gay men and women from becoming members. Alan Michael's early devotees saw him as an adept spiritual guide, capable of understanding the universe at a higher level than anyone they'd previously encountered. His vision inspired them to believe that the world could live in harmony, with everyone sharing their possessions and respecting each other's freedom. His disciples even accepted his idea that Jesus Christ was not the only Son of God, but rather another cosmic messenger like Alan Michael. He buzzed around space on flying saucers. 
Alan Michael confirmed that extraterrestrials escorted Christ from his tomb on the day of the resurrection. He insisted that Jesus levitated into a spaceship and left his earthly body behind to inhabit his eternal body, just as Alan Michael would. And any follower could achieve this eternal existence if they complied with the New Age way of living. Unlike other cult leaders, Alan Michael never used fear to silence his followers' questions. Nor did he push his agenda on those who weren't interested in hearing him. He simply opened up a discussion. And when his word made sense to someone, they joined the commune. When it didn't, they walked away. The commune wouldn't last in that form for long. By the summer of 1969, the San Francisco restaurant closed, and so the commune opened a new one in Marin County, though this one only lasted about six months. But the setback didn't seem to matter much, because Alan Michael had fallen in love once again. That year, he married his second wife, Diane. She was a member of the commune, too, and they went on to have two children. Once united, the couple decided to re-establish the commune in Berkeley, California. They bought a vegetarian cafeteria in a former Lucky's supermarket on Telegraph Avenue and renamed it the One World Family Natural Food Center. By 1970, the spot was bustling with hippies. Every week, Alan Michael publicly channeled the messages of Galactic Logos to a growing congregation of bohemians, activists, and flower children. This time, the 40-plus member commune not only staffed the restaurant, but inhabited two giant fraternity houses in Berkeley. The cafeteria ran a whole wheat honey bakery, a pizzeria, and a clothing store called Universal Far Outfits. Communalists invited their customers to come in and create their own artware. There were tie-dyeing booths and a screen-printing workshop. Again, nobody was paid, and they shared the proceeds. Men, women, and children operated the restaurant and businesses in alternating shifts. The group made its own clothes and food. There was even a small concert hall in the giant restaurant-slash-market. Other members of the group claimed to have experienced their own encounters with extraterrestrial intelligence. This was the common thread that bonded the communalists. The connection allowed them to trust one another and govern themselves. Every Sunday, the One World family met to discuss their goods, resources, work shifts, and the allocation of profit spending for the coming week. As the commune grew, so did the group's belief that it could run the country and the world one day. With Alan Michael's eyes turned toward a larger stage, devotees also wanted to convert all Christians. This expulsion of old Christianity wouldn't be forced through violence or warfare. Instead, the group predicted Christians would want to believe in galactic logos once they heard about the everlasting gospel. But conservative Christians likely avoided the communalists because of their association with illicit drugs. While it was never directly stated in the group's credo, we should mention that psychedelic drugs were popular within the One World family. A few years earlier, when they were still based in San Francisco, the bells of UC San Francisco's founders clocked chimed three. As Alan Michael and one of his communalist pals sauntered across campus, handing out flyers for the restaurant. As they walked, a bespectacled man approached with a flyer of his own. 
Warmly, Alan Michael accepted the flyer and the men struck up a conversation. The man said he was an astronomy teacher and wanted to offer students the chance to observe a constellation not often visible to the naked eye. Then he made a joke about how marijuana could enhance the viewing, but he didn't know where to procure it. That's when Alan Michael and his compatriot perked up. They happened to have an extra lump in their knapsack and offered to sell the teacher an eighth of an ounce. The teacher smiled. The men conducted the transaction. And within seconds, the teacher revealed he was actually an FBI agent. He arrested Alan Michael and his communalist friend on the spot. Alan Michael spent the next six months in a Vacaville prison, and the changes he underwent there were epic. When he emerged from prison, he'd have an even more extreme agenda and a deeper need to spread the everlasting gospel. Up next, Alan Michael runs for President of the United States of America. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now back to the story. In 1968, the FBI arrested 52-year-old artist and new spiritual comforter Alan Michael Noonan for the possession and sale of an eighth of marijuana. While in prison, he grew resolute that he was indeed the angel of deliverance in the Bible's book of Revelation, chapter 10, because he had one foot on the earth and the other in the galaxy. When he was released later the same year, Alan Michael returned to the commune. In prison, he'd engaged telepathically with Galactic Logos every night. He'd been directed to prove his identity as the angel in Revelation, and that meant he had to pass a little test. The crucial sections of Revelation 10, 1-11 state, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, and he had in his hand a little book open, and he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Based on a selective interpretation of this passage, Alan Michael believed he had to figuratively digest the words in the so-called little book. To him, this meant the messages in the everlasting gospel, so he ate up the gospel by memorizing every single word. From then on, the words came out of his mouth as sweet as honey. But he also felt that the earth was full of dangerously negative, evil energy. He had to digest those forces too. That meant taking on the auras of war, crime, disease, and poverty and balancing them out with the positive forces of the gospel. In an attempt to counteract negativity, he engaged in private meditative practices. He had to generate new ideas to transform these evils into the spirit of God's, or the Galactic Logos's, plans. It was a tall order, but the Universal Mind sent forth a directive to Alan Michael to publish their important ideas. 
They wanted Alan Michael to compile all the messages he'd ever received and send them out into the world. So that's exactly what he did. By 1973, not only had 57-year-old Alan Michael finally presented the first book of the Everlasting Gospel, but he also officially founded the Universal Industrial Church of the New World Comforter. The IRS recognized the group as a church with 501c3 nonprofit status. Not much changed in terms of the group's membership, philosophies, or duties. But the next decade became a period of massive productivity for the order. Alan Michael's businesses were thriving, but he was growing spiritually too. He had more to say than ever before and was bolstered by the success of the restaurants. He felt there was no better way to get the word out and no better use for the commune's profits than to start up Starmast Productions, the church's media arm. Starmast helped circulate Alan Michael's new books in the Gospel series, UFO ETI World Master Plan, ETI Space Beings Intercept Earthlings, and God Ultimate Unlimited Mind Speaks. In these publications, he went into greater detail about Logos. He focused on how extraterrestrial intelligent space beings have intervened at key moments to redirect the course of history. For instance, Alan Michael suggested that Logos led Christopher Columbus to journey unto a land that I will show thee, as referenced in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Thus, Columbus was rewarded with the great nation of America. Later, in 1975, Alan Michael moved the church's headquarters and restaurant to Stockton, California, about 80 miles inland from the Bay Area. Forty communalist members moved from Berkeley, and together they rented a huge mansion and a few other homes to share. By 1978, however, membership in the commune dropped by almost half. Alan Michael and his followers also published other books, including a vegetarian cookbook. Though the commune was proving to be insanely productive, Alan Michael still felt compelled to do more. In 1980, the group established its own political party, called the Utopian Synthesis Party. The political mission was to educate the public about the Universal Mind's world economic plan. They intended to influence their earthly brothers and sisters and fulfill the master plan of their extraterrestrial guides. To do this well and really gain attention, Alan Michael ran for president. At 64 years old, he campaigned as an independent, publicly rejecting the worst aspects of America's 21st century materialism. Instead, he spoke of uni-communism, a utopian government in which society shared everything. His platform included the idea of printing free money to end federal and state taxes, unemployment, inflation, and financial depression. Furthermore, Alan Michael hoped to distribute all goods to those who needed them most for free. Plus, he offered up what he called the 30-30 plan. This would allow people to go to work for 30 days, then take a 30-day break. At debates and town halls, Alan Michael spoke about how the people who were supposed to be running the country had succumbed to greed, selfishness, and egotism. He wanted to right their wrongs. He explained that Earth people were foolish. War was foolish. He implored Americans to understand that people were all part of the same galactic energy, which meant there could be no enemy. By waging war against another government, they were waging war on themselves. 
He proposed a world that didn't need military forces, prisons, or law enforcement. Instead, he introduced the idea of public service through love. Of course, he handily lost the 1980 primary. But that didn't stop him from running for governor of California in 1982, two years later. Alan Michael suspected he'd tried to reach too many too quickly. If he focused solely on Californians, he could build a stronger base of believers. But that plan was a failure. Even on a small stage, Alan Michael couldn't connect. However, he wasn't giving up after he lost the gubernatorial primary that year. He decided to run for president once more in 1984. Unfortunately for Alan Michael, he lost again. After his failed political career, 75-year-old Alan Michael Noonan moved the group one last time to Santa Rosa, California in 1991. They taught natural food courses, produced television interviews with Alan Michael, and recorded a series of audio tapes espousing the philosophy of the everlasting gospel. From then on, the group's membership lulled. They never had more than 10 to 20 disciples. They continued to share all things, but they shied away from more public arenas. By the early 2000s, the group's membership had withered. They'd failed to attract younger members for years. On March 25, 2010, 93-year-old Alan Michael died. His obituary stated only that he lived in Santa Rosa, California, and that he passed. There was no other information. But his followers held on to the belief that Alan Michael transcended this world. To them, he lives on somewhere in the universe. No new leader was ever chosen to assume the spiritual comforter's responsibilities, which means that soon the group will likely grow extinct. Today, however, the commune maintains the church's website. They operate solely on donations from others for their services. They accept speaking engagements, craft artisan items, publish books, and grow food or bake. The oldest members live on Social Security. Though gone, Alan Michael has not been forgotten. While fewer than 10 remaining devotees may still believe his soul lives on in Galactica, his collective was an idealistic venture that actually functioned for a few decades. His success may have been limited, but his dreams certainly were not. Perhaps he's still out there, whirling through space, teaching people to share. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Alan Michael Noonan and the Universal Industrial Church of the New World Comforter, amongst the many sources we used, we found Diana Tuminia's essay, Galactic Messenger, Overview of the Universal Industrial Church of the New World Comforter, in the book Alien Worlds, Social and Religious Dimensions of Extraterrestrial Contact, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Giles Hobseth, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.
fiction fame. Discover the real story behind one of history's most formidable families in the Spotify original from Parcast, The Kennedys. Remember, you can binge all 12 episodes starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify.